So Money episode 203, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey, welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It's Sunday. What do you think of these weekend episodes? Do you think that I should just go to Monday through Friday and maybe do Friday uh, Ask Farnoosh's? Because... You know, to be honest, this is a lot of work. I really love this podcast. It's a passion of mine, but I don't know if I'm really doing the right smart thing. Maybe the better move is to condense the show to a Monday through Friday format. Now that we've surpassed 200 episodes, we've surpassed six months. I'm, you know, looking at potential sponsorship. I'm I'm thinking, how can I really streamline this and do the best work and put the best uh, the best show out there and, you know, maybe give ourselves a break on the weekends, get a breather, get some relaxation in and then start fresh again on Monday. So just something I'm contemplating. Uh, a while back, I was also contemplating this, although I thought it was too soon to really switch the format, but now I feel like I've earned the right to reroute this show. And particularly if my listeners think it's a good idea. So email me, farnishitsomoneypodcast.com and let me know, do you think that you would be down from Monday through Friday format? Because maybe that's something that we can start as soon as next month and we give ourselves a break on the weekends. Would you stick with the show? Would you be disappointed? I know it sort of loses its cachet of being this quote unquote daily seven day a week podcast, which I pride myself in, but maybe I need to let go of that ego and pride and just do something that is smarter, more efficient and healthier in the long run. Because doing this seven days a week, um, this podcaster <laughs> is running out of sleep. So, uh, but that said, you know, again, I love the show. I love doing this. It is a passion for me. It is a passion of mine. And I um, I really enjoy it. So I'm kind of torn. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm seeking your assistance, your feedback. Lots of questions to get to today. As I mentioned on the yesterday, as I mentioned on yesterday's show, I did not get through many, although it was a pretty long episode. It was almost 20 minutes. I like to cut it off at around 17, 18, 20 minutes because I feel at that point I'm burnt out. The listener might be a little bored at that point listening to just me, my voice for that much time. And, um, you know, it's, it's good just to keep the pace. So we got as, I'm going to try to get to as many questions today as I can. I'm going to stop rambling. <laughs> Sorry. And go right to Emily. And she writes in and says, Hey, Farnoosh, I'm really loving the podcast. Thanks, Emily. She says, I listen to it every day. Really? On my walk back home from work, it has inspired me to schedule the first money meeting with my boyfriend of many years. My question is, can I, as a non-U.S. citizen, invest in the U.S.? I'm a Canadian and I've been living in the U.S. for the past six years. I've been looking online and found mixed messages about non-U.S. residents investing in the U.S. Also, can I invest with only $1,000 or $2,000? In other words, is there a minimum amount of money one should start with to invest? Well, I I don't think you are ex- restricted, Emily, from investing in the U.S. I mean, as, as U.S. citizens, we can invest in foreign markets, and I think it should work the other way around. 
I'm not 110% sure about this, but I would say if you're interested in investing, talk to your local brokerage about this and they should be able to spell it all out for you. Maybe there are some funds that are restricting. Uh, So you would need to do a little bit of exploration Talking to the right people, such as someone who works for a brokerage or a financial advisor would be the first step. How much to start investing with? You can certainly start with a thousand or two thousand dollars and buy an ETF or buy an index fund. Sometimes you can start with as low as a thousand or even five hundred dollars. So certainly, yes, you can get started. And I would say if you're interested in long-term investing in something like an index fund, an exchange-traded fund, passive investing, starting with as little as $1,000, you can do it. And I would be very much in support of that. So thanks for your question. And hooray for your first money meeting. Let me know how it goes. Joe writes in and says, just a short note to commend you and thank you for your outstanding podcast. My wife and I are followers of your show and we're so impressed by the quality and quantity of the financial information that you crank out on a daily basis. Okay, now I'm starting to feel a little like I have to keep this a daily show. (laughs) Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Emily. No, but this is really kind. Uh, Joe goes on to write, my wife and I are high school sweethearts, college dropouts, and now quiet millionaires. Really? Wow. Okay. Uh, Joe says, I started out at Burger King, then law enforcement, then a repo man. Now I work as an SVP for a bank We are heavily invested in buy and hold real estate and are looking to leave the uh, W-2 world shortly. We love all things Mr. Money Mustache and Farnoosh. Keep up the great work. Wow, Joe, why didn't you tell me this sooner? I was looking for millionaires like you, Millionaires Next Door. Uh, That's actually going to air in a couple of weeks, my series. So that I got so many responses actually to be on that particular weekly series, week series, that I'm thinking of doing it again in a few months, finding a whole new cast of five millionaires next door. So would love to include you in that mix. If you're interested, send me another email. Uh, this time, email me farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. And if you're interested, uh, let me know and I will keep you in the running for that, Joe. And thank you so much for your feedback and my thanks to your wife as well. Vera says, hi, Farnoosh, need your opinion. Should I move back home with my family when it's not necessary? I'm almost 30 in a stable career, save 21% of income for retiring, and I have $3,000 in debt. Rent in my area is expensive. I pay all my bills on time, but I have nothing left over for my goals. My parents just invited me to move back in with them. The pros, saving money, and my family would not suffer a burden or loss in any capacity. The cons, the boomerang stigma. Last time I moved home, I was clinically depressed because I was living at home, unemployed, broke. I felt like a failure. Please advise. Vera, go home. (laughs) No brainer. Why did you have this depression last time? Well, because, you know, you were unemployed, you were broke. Now, not the same situation. You are gainfully employed. You are saving a wonderful amount of your income, 21%. That's very impressive. You, uh, yes, have $3,000 in debt, but that's nominal. You can get rid of that really fast, especially if you're living at home. And I disagree. I don't think there is a stigma of boomeranging. Maybe, you know, you're approaching 30. You expect at this point that you are on your own two feet. You're independent. You don't need to move back home. And certainly here, you don't need to move back home, but you could and you can. And I think in this case, maybe it's worth spending the next year at home shoring up even more cash. It's almost like you 
uh, accelerated your financial life by two or three years from this quiet investment of your time staying at home with your family. And if you like your family, that's even a bonus. So I say, Vera, do it. You have my stamp of approval. You have my high five, my virtual high five. And if anyone gives you crap for this, you know what? Just know that you are doing the a really great thing for your financial life. And, and what's more is you're spending time with your family, which is very special too. So do it, enjoy it. This isn't something that you can do anytime, any year. In the future, when you meet someone and you becomes two and you have a family, this isn't gonna be an option. You can do this now, do it, enjoy it, invest in it, and reap the benefits. Alexia says, hi, Farnoosh, you are great and beautiful and my Iranian bestie is starting to get a bit jealous of my worship of you. Oh boy, sorry guys. Not meaning to get in the way of friendships, but I appreciate the comment. Alexia says, I'm saving 6% of my income towards retirement. Great job. And my company is matching this. Should I increase my own retirement savings to 10%, resulting in 16% in total with my company's contribution? I'm almost done saving for my emergency fund, and I will then start saving for a deposit for an investment property. So I'm concerned that saving extra for retirement will slow this down. Many thanks. Kind regards, Alexia. Well, Alexia, first of all, awesome that you're doing enough to earn the full match at your company. That's a good lesson for everyone listening. If you have a 401k at work and your company offers a match, do that at the minimum. And if combined, your contribution and their contribution reaches 10%, great. You're you're doing really well. I would say if you're in your 20s and you're just starting out, uh, retirement saving, that's a good goal to have 10%. If you're in your 30s, Alexia, or older, and you haven't been doing that great of a job with retirement savings in the past, and you're playing a little bit of catch up, then I would say, you know, try to do more than 10%. Um, if 16% is going to prevent you from being able to save for other things and invest in other things, then maybe uh, split the difference. Try to do 12%, 14%. But you know, 10% is, is good. It's great if you're in your twenties and you're just starting out, but it's not enough necessarily if you are older and you are playing a bit of catch up. So, uh, not knowing your particular situation, I would say, consider that you, you know yourself better than I do. If you feel that you are saving at a comfortable rate, then stick with that and dedicate some of your other money to these other goals of yours. But if you know that you are playing catch up and this is, well, this is a good thing that you're doing now. It's kind of the first year that you've gotten into this habit. Maybe it's better that you stick to a higher percentage. And thank you so much for your comment. And I hope I'm not really getting in the way of your friendship. And um, what can I say? I love Iranian people. So you're in good company, Alexia. Fiona writes and says, hey, Farnoosh, you should interview Caroline Rector of Unfancy, a blog about having a capsule wardrobe of 37 pieces per season to save money to live in other cities. She has inspired me to look at my wardrobe and get rid of clothes and buy new clothes and accessories with intention. Jess Lively featured her on her podcast twice. Funny you said intention and immediately I thought of Jess Lively. Funny how that word is now correlated with Jess Lively. And for those of you who don't know who Jess Lively is, she's a phenomenal female podcaster. Okay, I'm going to look into Caroline Rector. I'll, I'll have our team uh, reach out to her. And, and that's how it works, guys. If you want to listen to people's interviews, particular people that you admire, that you respect, let me know. I will do the outreach on your behalf. 
Now we have a question from Betsy. Hi, Farnoosh. As a recent college grad who is moving to New York soon, straight out of college and living on a starter salary, do you have any recommendations for how I should be budgeting my salary between college loans, rent, credit card debt, food, etc.? Any help would be greatly appreciated. Actually, Betsy, I do have a very specific pie chart that I like to show many millennials, many recent college grads. I use this chart, this breakdown when trying to decide how much to allocate to all these different things. And I will put this over at somoneypodcast.com under this Sunday episode of Ask Farnoosh. So click on that on the website. You'll see this chart there. But just to explain generally, I think that housing can be a really huge bite out of your budget. It can be a really big, big expense. And sometimes a lot of times we go overboard, particularly when we're living in a city like New York City, which is very, very expensive. So limiting that is key. Not exceeding, say, 30% of your take-home pay. I know that's rough in a city like New York City. So if you can limit it to 35% of your take-home pay, good. I mean, overall in the rest of the country, I would say you don't want to be spending more than 25-30% of your take-home pay on Housing at a maximum in New York, I don't think you can really get away with not spending at least 30% of your income on, on, uh, rent in Manhattan at least. So if you're, if you want to live in, in a nice part of the city, get a couple roommates at least and look for no fee apartments and try to limit your share of the rent to no more than 35% of your take-home pay. Really, really important, especially, again, if you've got student loans and you have other commitments on your plate, you don't want to be going overboard with housing, okay? If you can live at home for a while, do that. Save that money that you would have otherwise spent on real estate. Then as far as debt, you know, I think that it's got to be addressed and at the beginning of the month, not the end of the month. You don't want to be thinking of debt as an afterthought, of an, as an after task. So I always say that you want to add up all the minimum payments on your credit card, on your student loans. And if those minimum payments are 20% or more of your take-home pay, then you need to work with a credit counselor, someone who can help you negotiate those debts and get you to perhaps a lower interest rate or some sort of a payment plan. That's when you know you need help. If your minimum payments added up are less than 20% of your take-home pay, then you want to do what you can to uh, put double, triple, quadruple that minimum towards those debts, starting with the high interest rate credit cards so that you are getting out of debt quickly. And once the debt's gone, guess what? You've got 20% of your income now at your disposal to do what you want with it. And suddenly, you know, the clouds part. You should save 10% of your income in a rainy day account and another 10% in your retirement account. You should save about 5 to 10% a month for food, uh, groceries, and maybe eating out once in a while. And for everything else, head over to somoneypodcast.com. I'm going to put this pie chart up on the blog there and you'll see the breakdown. And if you have any more questions, do email me. By the way, my first book, You're So Money, Live Rich Even When You're Not, it really it, it captures the zeitgeist of being a millennial young adult, especially in a big city like New York, spoken from the first person, how I did it, how others are doing it to make ends meet and have a lifestyle, really a good life 
on a very, very small budget, living rich, even when you're not. So pick up that copy at your local library, or you can get a really cheap edition now on, you know, Amazon. It's been out for gosh, gosh, seven years. Oh my God, I'm getting old. Okay. That's a wrap everyone. On that nice note, Farnish is getting old. I'm going to stop right here and say, hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Sunday, August 2nd, we made it through July. Can you believe it? And I don't know where you're listening from, but here in New York, it is stinking hot. And I've been doing this podcast without my AC running because I didn't want it to be disruptive. And guess what? I'm going to turn on that AC right now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. Hope the rest of your day is so money.